So our passage today represents the first major turn, according to Matthew, in the ministry of Jesus. This phrase, this passage, and certainly as we continue on this discourse for the next couple chapters, this is the thesis, according to Matthew, for what Jesus is going to do literally for the rest of the liturgical year that we will spend time in Matthew. Now, up until this point in Matthew, we've heard a little bit of Jesus' story as a child. We get a little bit more of the story about fleeing, and you know, this is the only time we get to hear about Joseph's lament and how difficult it may have been for him, and we witness the earliest part of Jesus' ministry. And if you remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the very first statement Jesus makes to begin his ministry is, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, out of the New Revised Standard Version, that you need to reconsider your ways, because God's commonwealth is on its way. Repent, dear friends, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. And after he says that, he then calls a couple disciples, right? They get out of their boats, and he begins his healing ministries, and people were starting to follow him, and not just from small distances either. Now, this is like a big deal happening in the region. I mean, we're talking, depending on which gospel writer you pay attention to for this, I mean, we're talking hundreds of miles distance from one end to the other, from Jerusalem and Tyre. People were coming from all over, and, you know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have bicycles. They're walking to come and see Jesus. And as far as we can tell, you know, when you say crowds, I, you know, I don't know what necessarily defines a crowd except to say it's a group of people that is not insignificant. Literally hundreds of miles between the cities, the people of the community were now following Jesus. And you know, this well-known, beloved passage, the Beatitudes, Sort of like John 3.16, right? We, we know John 3.16, but we don't always pay attention to the context around it. We don't always see what is it set in. And in the same way, we can jump right to the Beatitudes because we like the rhythm of it, right? It's fun to say. I don't get to say blessed, right? As much as I used to, it's always blessed. So I feel extra, you know, fancy and say, blessed are they. But this whole thing starts with a statement that's often overlooked. And it's that Jesus started once he saw the crowd. He saw them. And it's clear that Matthew denotes later, as we finish this discourse, this Sermon on the Mount, it's not necessarily the, who's not necessarily in the crowd, are the clerics of the day, right? We see over time in Matthew's gospel, eventually the clerics, the Pharisees, and all those folks, now they eventually, once we start to see that Jesus is getting serious and Jesus is saying some things that we don't like, once they begin to see the power shifting towards Jesus and away from the usual order of the day, then that's when the clerics will show up. Instead, it would seem to be everyone else, the everyday people, the faceless crowd, the community, the hoi polloi of the day. And we'll see also over and over again that 
coupled with this moment that Jesus sees the people, he is overcome with compassion for these folks. And this word in the Greek, it's one of my favorite words in the Greek. When we talk about Jesus's compassion, it is literally an expression that is more often used is to be as if one's entrails, one's guts are literally being ripped open. It's that kind of visceral, physical feeling that Jesus feels when he sees these people. It's not just a thoughts and prayers moment for Jesus Christ as he sees the people who travel hundreds of miles to be with him and see him and hope to be healed. No, he feels deeply. God's heart is moved to its possible human extent by the pain of those who have dropped everything in order for the hope of being healed. And so it's interesting then that from the point of compassion, Jesus sees what he sees and then he teaches what he teaches. And how we should wish that more churches heard this truth. That the direction of Jesus' ministry was not for those already, for those whom felt comfortable. It's not for those who have passed through all the rules and regulations, who made it through the gauntlet and are in the pews safe and comfortable. You know, we had a session meeting on Thursday, and um, after we had wrapped up, I was talking to a session member, and I appreciated this comment. He said, he said, you know, what I've realized is that the church at its best is, is not always looking on the inside for what it should do, but instead it's looking on the outside, that our structure is always oriented to those who aren't quite here yet. Our orientation is for those who are not quite there, who are hurting ailing, broken, and convinced that there is no good news in Jesus Christ. People that are certain that it's just the same issues, problems, hurt, and pain. Now, don't get me wrong. For those of you who may not be regular attenders to South Jacks, it's not that we ignore those who are on the inside. Certainly not. We care for everyone in our midst. But should that be the sole goal of a ministry, it ultimately hurts every single one of us. So that orientation to a world that's hurting, we learn that the kingdom of heaven is going to be much, much different than how the world looks today. And that also may be why, when we look at this, it's much easier to kind of skip to the Beatitudes and say, well, this looks really good. Because, you know, a reconsideration of how things must be requires changes in the head and the heart and the hands. Right? That actually, when we talk about metanoia and we talk about repentance, that's part of the reality of repentance. It's not just a mental exercise where one says, oh, I get things are different, so that's, that's great, and then not have a life change. We not only have to think about the world differently, but also our hearts are moved more radically. What would it be like for each of us to be moved with the same compassion for those we see burdened by this world? 
As we think about the world differently, our hearts are moved more radically and our hands work towards Christ's design. And here's the thing. I I get this. If, If you've built something that works for you, if you build a worldview that took you time to foster and make sense of the world, you built your foundation, you built your walls, you feel good, it is hard to let that go. No matter how persuasive the gospel may be. For a lot of churches, for instance, it's much easier to be a country club church because it sounds terrific for those who pass the test. But like any good country club, there are plenty of folks who are just looking on the other side of the fence wondering what's going on and whether they should be invited as well. But again, here's here's the question we have to wrestle with in this passage today. Who is this gospel for? Who does Jesus see? Who is Jesus responding to? If this Jesus Emmanuel is forever with us and forever redefining what is the right, then the sight towards the ones wandering and hurting must be the primary goal of repentance for those who have found a home. I wonder what it would be like to hear Jesus acknowledge your pain one of the anonymous crowd who has dropped everything to follow this new rabbi saying wild things. What would it be like? Imagine you today, 2023, sitting here, the pain that you carry, the struggles that you carry. What if you heard Jesus Christ say to you, you know what, that thing that isn't right in this world, it's not going to be the same way in the kingdom of heaven. God's commonwealth will turn it upside down. What would it be like in the midst of years of suffering and struggle to hear that eventually all things will be made new? It seems to me, amidst all the potential proclamations that a church can make, perhaps the one that says those of you who are broken and hurt and are on the margins, it's not always going to be that way, boy, that would be a pretty good start, certainly in comparison to what potentially churches could say. But of course, this means that we cannot lull ourselves into thinking a type of genteel neutrality is sufficient that just by saying nothing, we can sort of stay below the waters. That so long as we advocate for both sides or something like that, we're doing the right thing. And it seems very clear here in the Gospels that there is a preference for seeking the kingdom of heaven. That seems to me to be the thing worth advocating for. Now, can this kingdom of God be achieved in multiple ways? Absolutely it can. That is the gift 
of diversity. That is a gift of every single person being here, coming from different backgrounds, having different thoughts. That is a gift. But unless it's in good faith for the flourishing of the traveling crowds who demand healing, it's not worth giving it space in the church. In other words, I don't always care about the means, but I think we should care about the ends. So how do we do this? Well, this action's been revealed to us from, for a long time, and Micah helps summarize it again for us. Friends, it's not the big things that we can do. It's not the showy things. It's not the attention-seeking things. Again, the writer of Micah is saying, what can I do to make things better, God? Should I, like, give you a million dollars? Should I make sure that everything I have is yours? Should I give all the fruits of, of my body? Should I do everything I can? What, what do you want me to do? And, and the response we've heard in the prophets a few times, whether it's Amos or Isaiah, is that as far as God's concerned, all those things seem relatively worthless. Dramatic worship, big statements, self-aggrandizement, hidden theological purity, they're kind of a waste. God hates those things. Unless it's with a sense of righteousness and justice alongside So Micah gives us this actually pretty easy guide, right? Three things. Do justice. By doing justice, we mean that we act in a way that is fair and consistent. We don't preference people simply out of convenience. We don't shun people because it is uncomfortable for folks to be here. We don't ignore people because they don't suit us. No, we do justice. Right, fair, even dealing to all. We also love kindness. We are unabashedly willing in unfailing kindness to be devoted with everybody around us. Love kindness. And walk humbly with God. We're called to live a life that is careful of another's direction. This isn't some sort of pious humility that allows us to say, well, you know, we can't do anything on our own. We must just hope that God passively takes care of us. No, there is some activity. You are gifted people, capable, called to do certain things, called to live in this world, called to eat chili in 45 minutes. It's not a pious humility that really just allows an action. No, instead, it is the wisdom to know that if we are on the wrong track, we are willing to work our way back towards the Holy Trinity. That if we find ourselves less interested in the meek and the humble and the hungry, those who mourn, that there is always a chance 
to redirect ourselves. So what does this mean for us? You know, every week as we've done this series, I've just asked, are we, are we ready for these things, church? Are we ready to live in this thesis that Jesus offers us? Are we ready to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? Especially for those who are told by far too many others that they are not deserving of that love or that love comes with stipulations? Are we ready? Because I stand by the fact, as evidenced by this week, that this world needs that justice, kindness, and humility. You, dear saints, are what this world needs. If we're ready. Thanks be to God.